club. So go have fun. Learn about Jesus. It's really fun. I've actually helped out once or twice, and uh, my wife is way better at me, than, but have fun. Before we begin, uh, I'd like to open this up in prayer. Father God, just thank you for today, and thank you for the sun. I pray that we would come to you today with open hearts, open minds. Pray that you'd give me the words to say. Pray that we would allow you to be king of our lives, to cleanse us from sin, and that we would follow you. In your son's name, amen. Really, I appreciate the opportunity to preach once again. You've had me back to back, and if I actually had known I was going to be doing this a couple weeks ago, I would have probably made a sermon series, a mini sermon series, but uh, unfortunately, Kip uh, broke his foot. And uh, so that's, that's why he's not preaching today. But Ben's coming back. I think he'll be back by, by next Sunday. And I, we just keep him in your prayers. We really miss him and uh, the rest of the team. I want to talk to you today about, I'm going to tell you a story. And I'm going to put a little asterisk in front of the story. <clears throat> and I'm going to be drinking a lot of water, by the way, because I'm sick. But uh, I want to tell you a story in to be honest, I got in trouble for telling the story once before. As I began to pray about what to preach about, I always like to start out a sermon with a story or an application, something that really I can, can, can relate with, or maybe that you could relate with. And I began to pray, and I was going to talk to you about how I viewed Jesus before I was a believer, but I felt, you know, it's like God just put on my heart, he's like, be real with these people, Jack. You're going to be talking about sin and talking about the king, and, and you're not really talking about anything you've ever dealt with in your own life. And, and I think that's the problem. A lot of people have this misconception about pastors or people that are ordained, or maybe even the deacons, that, that these people are, are super spiritual men. And while we, we are held to a standard, we're human beings. I, I am a, I'm a chief sinner among sinners, as it says in the scriptures. And so I'm going to tell you a time about where I fell into sin, and how God dealt with me with that. And the last time I preached about this, I'm not going to tell you what church I was at, but the deacons took me aside and said, we need to have a talk. And I was like, oh no, what I do now? And they're like, you just portrayed yourself in a very bad light. I was like, yeah? But I also showed how Jesus dealt with that. I said, I'm a human being. I'm not perfect. And, and anyone that thinks that they're perfect, and I think that's a problem with the American church today, is that pastors present themselves to be so perfect, so, so like untouchable that they're hard to relate with. So I'm going to tell you about the time I almost got in a fight in Wendy's. I'm going to tell you about the time I almost got in a fight in Wendy's. While I was in seminary. I lived in Dallas, Texas, and for anyone that's ever lived in the South, in the summer times, or even in the spring, around about this time, it is not cold outside. Actually, it was an abnormally hot uh, Easter break, spring break, and all my roommates had pretty much gone home except me, and I got hungry and I didn't feel like cooking. It was about 110 degrees outside, and so I felt like I would drive to Wendy's, which was only a few blocks down the road, but... Walking a few blocks at 110 degrees is not fun. And so I get in my car and I drive to Wendy's. And the way this Wendy's was set up was it had an entrance only and an exit only. And so 
I began to go up in the entrance only, and it had like a little wall in between it, and then it had a flower bed to the side. And I see a car coming towards me. I'm like, is this guy going to stop? What is he doing? I start honking my horn. I'm like, man, you're about to hit me. And so I had a Jeep, and luckily I was able to get, I pulled up in the flower bed. And the guy's going by me, and I'm doing like this with my arms and honking at him. And I'm like, dude, what is your problem? And so I pull into the drive-thru. I begin to place my order. As, after I place my order, I'm sitting there waiting in line. And next thing I know, this car comes barreling in. He pulls right behind me, and it's th- that car. And he, I see the, an older, two older couples. Then there's a, a lady. She's like yelling at him. I, I can imagine what she's saying. And, Don't do this. What are you doing? Are you stupid? Um, things like that. And he gets out, and he comes charging towards me with his fist balled. Now, I grew up very rough. And I'm still a work in progress, and I'm like, who does this dude think he is? So I roll down my window, and he starts cussing. Blankety, blankety, blank. You know, you can imagine the picture. And I'm like, I'm sitting here, I'm taking it, I'm taking it. And he, he begins to insult me, call me names, and I'm like, I just finally, my, my rage had been bullying. See, what I didn't tell you at the beginning of the story was, for the past six months, I've been dealing with some issues in my own life. I've been dealing with some arrogant issues, some prideful issues. And I, I was kind of putting Jesus, even though I was learning about Jesus the King and Jesus the Redeemer, I was kind of focusing on the academic aspect so much that I was allowing my spiritual walk to crumble. I was allowing myself to get easily angry. That's something I've dealt with all my life was anger issues, mostly because of the way I grew up. And so... I had, my, my own temple was, was a little dirty, and I hadn't been given that to Jesus, and so my sinful pride began to, to act up. And I like to say, old Jack tried to dig himself out of the grave. And I'm like, I pause, and I'm like, dude, are you out of your mind? First off, this is Texas. Do you realize everybody has a gun in Texas? You're crazy for going up to a car. And he pauses. And I'm like, who do you think you are? If you, I'll tell you what, man. I said I may be some of those things that you, you called me, but you're older than me and you're going to die soon. And he looks at me and I was like, get away from my car before I knock your face out. And I said, I mean it. And I start opening my car door and he like walks off. Like he's, he's, he's walking off. I get my order and I drive home. I'm fuming, I'm focusing just on, on, on just what happened. And I start thinking about, wait a second. I go to seminary. I'm an outspoken believer in Jesus Christ. I tell everyone I know about Jesus. There would have been consequences for my sinful act. There was already consequences. Maybe this guy didn't know the Lord. Maybe, maybe he's dealing with a lot of issues. Oh my gosh. What did I just do? And also, if that actually had gotten in a fight with this guy, I can imagine the Dallas Morning News headline, Seminarian gets in a fight with a 69-year-old. That would have been the end of my ministry. 
See, the problem was I was not acknowledging Jesus as king of my life during this time. I had, I had a sin issue. And sin has consequences. Today, we're going to be looking at Matthew 21, verses 1 through 16. And we're going to be, be looking that we all have a need. We have a need that Jesus is our king. We have a need to celebrate the king this Easter season. To allow the king to clean up the sin in our life. Today, we're going to be looking at three things that show us about the king in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 16. But first, I'm going to give you some background on this text. Jesus is going towards Jerusalem to proclaim his messianic kingship to the people. This is like, if you're reading a novel, this is like the last couple of chapters in a novel, or watching a movie, this is the climax. This is the beginning of the climax of, of the story. Jesus is going to proclaim the kingdom and announce that the king is coming. And shortly after his arrival, though, instead of being welcomed by the people, he's rejected and killed. See, he comes into the city and his presence is felt immediately. And he announces some things to the world. And he's rejected by the leaders by the religious people. But he's rejected as king. So in this passage, we're going to be looking at three things about his kingship in this passage. The first thing is, we see in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, the arrival of the king. 21, verses 1 through 11, the arrival of the king. Now when they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples telling them, go to the village ahead of you right away and you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you are to say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, look, your king is coming to you unassuming and seated on a donkey, on a colt in the fold of a donkey. So the disciples went and did what Jesus had instructed them to do. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them. And he sat on them, and a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him, and he kept on shouting, Hosanna to the, Hosanna to the Son of David, bless is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown in an uproar, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus claims his kingship by exercising his right of intimate domain. Before he goes into Jerusalem, Jesus gets his disciples together and he tells two of them, hey, I want you to go and go get me a colt and a donkey. So a baby donkey and a mother donkey. And I want you to bring them to me. And, and I can imagine the disciples' thoughts right there. I can imagine, like, can imagine if I, somebody came to you, say, Lenny's like, hey, go to, uh, go to Fargo and just grab the first uh, car that you see and, and bring it to me. There, I'd be sitting there thinking, wait a second, does, does Jesus own a donkey I don't know about? Or does he want me to commit grand theft donkey? 
And what Jesus is doing, and he tells them, hey, if somebody asks you, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? To tell them the Lord needs them. He is actually using his kingship here by the act of intimate domain. There, there's actually a word for it. It's called Engaria. Engaria, which means the, the right of the king. A ruler during this time, either it be a, ruler, a Jewish ruler or even a, a Roman ruler, they could go to you and say, hey, I need your donkey. I need, I need this. I'll, I'll, they had to bring it back, but they're like, I, I need your donkey. And they could use it. And so what Jesus is doing right here is saying, hey, I am a king. I have the right to this donkey. And so he goes into the city on, on, on a colt, and, and this is actually to fulfill the prophecy by Zechariah 9.9, where he, 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 this is the prophecy that people are expecting a king to come in on a war horse. When you think of a king, think about the movie The Return of the King. When he comes in, he's not riding a donkey. He's riding a horse. And so... Okay, um, so, <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> so the disciples put cloaks on the donkey. This is similar to what happened to Second Kings. I'm going to let you catch up a little bit. Um, okay, keep on. There we go. Yeah, go another one. This 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 is similar to what happened to. Uh, in 2 Kings 9, 12 through 13. 2 Kings 9, 12 through 13. We could turn to that. But they had said, you're lying. Tell us what he said. And so he told them what he said and he, how he rela- related how he had said to them, this is what the Lord says. I have designated you to be king over Israel. And each of them quickly took their cloak and spread them out before Jehu's feet on the steps. The trumpet was blown and they shouted, Jehu is king. What Jesus is doing right here is, is almost reenacting the scene in Scripture. He is, Jehu, if you don't know the background of this guy, he is referred to as one of the good kings during the time of bad kings, during the, the time when Israel has been split in two. And Jehu had been appointed by God to be king. And, and there was so much promise with him. So much He was the one that was supposed to restore balance to bring a golden age to the people. Yet, he turned out to be a good slash bad king. These are where he was the, the best king they basically had, but he was still good slash bad. Because he didn't do all that God wanted him to do. What Jesus is telling the people is, hey, this king that you're expecting... This king that you're longing for is come. I'm the best king. I'm going to restore balance. I'm here. And so on his way, Jesus is riding on a donkey. Not as a warrior, but as a healer. The one that's going to restore and the people begin to gather around Jesus, the ones that's been following him. And they go into the city and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Basically, they're saying, hell to the king, the king is coming. And they're quoting scripture from Psalm 18, 118, 25 through 26. And basically, they're saying that the king has come. Their king has come. Please deliver us. The king has come. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever actually seen a large crowd gather when someone famous has come. Uh, I actually got to see, uh, when I was in Dallas, I saw this happen twice. First time was George W. Bush, he came to Dallas, and, and it, it was crazy. The traffic was blocked off, there, there was people everywhere, and, and I can imagine the Secret Service, it was probably a logistical nightmare for them. And then also the second time was when Jay-Z visited Dallas. Actually, I think there was more people to go see Jay-Z than there was the Bush. But people were screaming and yelling, and it's kind of the same scene that Jesus is riding in, and, and not only are the people, that his followers coming, but people that have heard of Jesus or, or maybe are interested, they, they hear him and they see them, and the people are yelling and shouting. And I, I've heard some sermons. This is normally the passage that a lot of pastors preach on, on Palm Sunday. Here's what they say. The human heart is fickle, and these people that were praising Jesus coming into the city are the same ones a few days later were yelling for him to be crucified. And how that we do the same thing. How we are in a battle with our loyalties. And I could have preached that sermon, and it would have been a lot easier for me to preach. The only problem was, while I agree theologically with that, the text does not seem to indicate that these people right here are the same ones calling for the blood of our Savior when he's captured. These are people that are out authentically following Jesus. And actually, it seems to indicate that these are the people, some of these people saw Jesus ascend to heaven. Because remember, how many people did he ascend to heaven in front of? When Jesus is arrested, it's that night. He's tried pretty much it's that night. It's not amongst the people. It's amongst people that the Pharisees have put in to basically accuse Jesus falsely. But as Jesus is coming into the city, <coughs> the whole city is thrown into an uproar. And it's very similar to what happened in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When the king Herod had heard this, he was alarmed and all of Jerusalem with him. See, when Jesus, his birth was proclaimed by foreign wise men, Herod had become disturbed, but not only him, but it says the entire city with him. All the rulers, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all these people, the religious elite, they were disturbed because the status quo was threatened. And so they're disturbed because Jesus is coming now into the city to claim his kingship, and they're like, oh no, what's going to happen? You see, during this time, throughout their history of being occupied by the Romans, during this time there was a lot of times rebellions that would happen. And Rome was getting tired of Jerusalem doing this. And actually, there have been threats that if they continue to do this, that the city would be, would be punished. And eventually, actually, it was. It was destroyed. The people, the Jews, were scattered. And so, the religious leaders, they're getting money off the people, and so they feel threatened. The king is coming, and my job may be at stake. The people are expecting a warrior king to come in and to, to displace the Romans. But Jesus had something better planned. 
Jesus had something greater in mind. So far we've seen the arrival of the king. The next thing we see in this passage is the authority of the king. The authority of the king, verses 12 through 14. Then Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were selling and buying the temple courts and turned them over the tables over the money of the money changers and the chairs of those that were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're turning it into a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to see him in the temple courts, and he healed them. What does Jesus first do when he gets into Jerusalem? He, he doesn't go to, to Pilate's house and say, all right, get out, get your Roman soldiers, get out. That's what the Jews were expecting. Instead, he goes into the temple. And he begins to clean house. He doesn't look to his neighbor, he looks to, to his people when he goes into the temple and he begins the clean house. You know, growing up, I did used to have this picture of, I called him Hippie Jesus. You know, real meek, mild Jesus. If you ever read this passage, I've never really seen a movie but one portray this accurately. Jesus gets medieval on these people, and there's a reason why. He goes to his own house to show his kingship over the temple. To show that not only is he king, but he is, he is head priest. He is high priest of the temple. And he, he, the people, when they would go into the temple, they would have to exchange their Roman money, basically the common money of the day, for temple money. And the reason why the, the, the religious leaders would say, we, we don't want coins with foreign, foreign heads on it or depictions of other pagan gods. And so you would have to buy your animal. And, uh, let me explain the temple a little bit for those of you who don't know. You'd have to get an animal, and basically you would have to purchase this animal, and you would take it to the priest, and you would say, this is my sin. I put my sin upon this animal, and the priest would kill it to represent that what your sin leads to is death. And that's the consequences of, of sin, is death. But in order to buy this animal, you first had to get your real money and trade it in for fake money. It's kind of like going to Chunky Cheese. Um, not, the temple's not Chunky Cheese, but it's the only illustration I can really think of is going to Chunky Cheese and getting the tokens that they use. And notice they always have a little higher markup on the tokens. Well, just like Chunky Cheese kind of charges more for their tokens, the priests were allowing people to sell and trade money at an unfair rate. You see, they turn what the temple was supposed to be, a place where, where you acknowledge your sin, where you go before God, and you're like, this is my sin, I know it, it, it's deserving of death, and this poor little innocent animal is going to take my sin upon itself, and I, I'm sorry. Instead of taking that from that experience, that became a haggling experience. We were like, how much for this sheep? Well, I'll take 10 dinars for it, but the sheep's only worth five. What are you doing? You're ripping me off. And, and, and you know who was getting the cutbacks from this? The priest. The priest. And so they were ripping off the people. So Jesus is telling the people, is he, big, he gets mad because he's like, this is not what it's supposed to be about. And he begins to, he's like, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. 
And so he shows his kingship, his, his high priesthood, by, by he kicks over, he basically releases the doves, he, he, he knocks over the money, he begins to whip these guys. Can you imagine the scene? This guy never picked up a hand on anyone. He walks in and it starts beating up people, throwing money everywhere. And the picture of the temple, too, is not only why Jesus is doing this in the courtyard, but the smells. People tend to forget the smell because sin is dirty. Sin's nasty. It's, and if, you, if you've ever been to a slaughterhouse, you pretty much know what I'm talking about. It's the smell of, of manure, blood, and burning flesh. It's not pretty. But the, the priest had taken it away from what it was supposed to be. There was supposed to be we're having a relationship with God through this act. Instead, they had to focus on, like, can we afford to do this? They're there to repent of their sins, and they're being robbed. Because for the priest, they had made it about ritual. They would made it from a place of worship to a place of tradition. You know, we're... They made it from a place where sin was minimized and profits were maximized. The priests were more concerned about profit than showing that sin has cost. And it's not a, a physical one. It's not, it's not one of, of monetary value. It's one that is death. Because that's what the whole thing about sacrifice was about. They had to do this year after year after year. Could you imagine every year having to go to church and bring this poor little animal in, and Ben had to cry out to God and slit its throat. And did you imagine having to do that every year? And the people knew that. I mean, this was not a lasting thing, and they were longing for something that was permanent. The leadership, though, had made the temple about a place of profit instead of profits, a place of self-serving hypocrisy. You know, there's a place for the sacrifice and there's a reason why it happened. But do you know that in the scripture, God actually talks about the sacrifices is not really the important thing. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. If you look at Isaiah 1, 11 through 18, it says this. Isaiah 1. 11 through 18. Sorry. <clears throat> 11:18. Oh, what importance is it to me of your sacrifices, say the Lord? I am stuffed with burnt offerings of rams and fats from steers and blood of bulls and lambs and goats. I do not want. When you enter my presence, do you actually think I want animals trampling on my courtyards? Do you not bring any more meaningless offerings? I consider your incense detestable and your observance of the new moon's festivals, Sabbaths and convocations, but I cannot tolerate sin-stained celebrations. I hate your new moon festivals and assemblies. They are a burden and I am tired of carrying them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I look the other way. 
When you offer many prayers, I do not listen because your hands are covered with blood. Watch, cleanse yourselves, remove your sinful deeds from my sight. Stop sinning. Learn to do what is right. Promote justice. Give to the the oppressed reason to celebrate. Take up the cause of the orphan. Defend the rights of the widow. Come, let's consider your options. Say the Lord. God has always been concerned more with the heart than the action. A lot of churches make even repentance today a ritual. During the second great awakening, the, 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 uh, the ritual of the altar call started. Before that, never happened in church. And while I think it's important to make a public confession that you, you become a Christian, many people, I know for myself, I, I never came up front and said, oh, I need Jesus. I did that privately. But for some people, they, they've doubted my salvation because I didn't do it publicly. It's not about the public display. It's about the, the heart. And what Jesus is doing, he's going into the temple, is basically saying, I am king. Y'all have a sin problem. You need to repent. And I'm going to do, take care of all of this. He even told the, the priest, you destroy this temple in three days and we rose again. What he was telling them was that I'm going to be the final sin offering. The final one. That, that this ritual that you're doing, you think that for your sins, it, it's not working. Because it's never been about the ritual. It's been about the heart. And so I'm going to do something that, where you won't ever have to sacrifice anything ever again. That's what he's doing in this temple. And then to kind of almost rub salt in the wound, he begins to heal the sick in the temple. The sick come to him and he proclaims his healing ability, that he's restoring not just all, because if you were sick and you were in a temple, you did not get to participate in the whole temple experience. And so he begins to heal them. I had a friend that I would share the gospel with. And he would say, you know, I need to get right with Jesus. I need, I need to do this, do that. I need to get right with Jesus before. I need to clean myself up before I could even ask Christ in my life. He wasn't a believer. And I would tell him, you know, you have to do nothing except admit that you need Christ and accept his death and resurrection and ask for a relationship and forgiveness. Jesus will cleanse you. And I told him, he said, you know why? Because he was the ultimate sacrifice. He's king, but he's also a high priest, but he's the ultimate sacrifice. And I quoted him from Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. This right here. For the law possesses a shadow of the good things to to come, but not a reality itself. And therefore is completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year to perfect the one who came to worship. For otherwise they would not have to cease to be offered since the worshipers would need to be purified once for all, to have no other consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices they remembered their sins year after year for the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. 
And then I would read Hebrews 10, 10 through 14 to him. By his will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. For every priest stands day after day serving and offering the same sacrifices again and again, sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered one sacrifice for the sins of all, he sat down at the right hand of God, who is now waiting for his enemies or made footstools for his feet. By for one offering, he, made perfect, he was perfected for all, all time, and those were made, he made holy. That's what Jesus was doing in the temple. That he was showing his authority over the priest. His authority over sin. And he was trying to show them, hey, you need to, you need to have a heart check. You know, we've seen the arrival of the king. We've also seen the authority of the king. The next thing we see is the acclamation of the king. <coughs> Verses 15 through 16. Fifteen through sixteen. But when the chief priest and the experts in the law came and saw the wonderful things he did and heard, the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry. And they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you ever not read out of the mouths of children and nursing infants? You have prepared praise for yourself. And leaving them, he went out to the city, to Bethany, and spent the night there. The priests are angry. Their whole apple cart, there's a saying I used to hear growing up called, uh, the, don't, did your apple cart get upset? And I didn't know what that really meant because I, I didn't know what an apple cart was. But... Um, when you knock over, uh, I guess a long time ago, they used to put apples in a cart, and if it got knocked over, apples get bruised, and people would get upset if you did that to their cart. I didn't grow up on a farm, so I was like, okay. But basically, these priests got their apple cart knocked over. Their, their, their money supply just got dried up a little bit. They have this guy coming who's he's saying he's the king, he's, he's the high priest, and he, they, he, they've had problems with him already. And so they get mad and they, they hear children. And, and while we love children in our society, in that society, children are, are, are not as revered as they are in ours. They, they're supposed to be kept to themselves. They're supposed to, that's why when the children came to Jesus, he said, don't, don't suffer little children not to come to me. It's because he's saying that all have a place with him. Children, adults, the sick. The hurt, hurting. And so they're mad and they say, do you not hear what's, what they're saying? And he's like, yeah, I hear what they're saying. These supposed experts in the law, they, they didn't get it. They didn't see their status quo get messed up. They, they don't get that the king, the Messiah, the one that they've been longing for was standing right in front of them. The one who was going to redeem them of their sins. And they're rejecting him. And Jesus basically says, and I love when you, when you look into what Jesus says, Jesus was pretty sarcastic at times. 
And this is one of those times. He, he quotes Scripture, and basically he quotes Psalm 8, verses 2, and he's basically saying, yeah, duh, who do you think I am? You don't get it. And they didn't get it, and so Jesus leaves. He leaves, and he, he prepares himself for what he needs to do. He's proclaimed himself as king. We've seen the arrival of the king, the proclamation of the king, and we've seen the acclamation of the king. You know, Jesus is king. He's priest and he's Messiah. We celebrate our king for what he did on the upcoming Good Friday and for what he did. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over sin. You know, we tend to minimize sin a lot of times in our own life and justify sin, and I'm guilty of doing that myself. The one thing I like to do during this week, uh, this holy week, as some people would call it, is, and this is your application. First off, do you know him as king? Have you ever accepted him as king? Some of you may be wrestling with, you know, I've never really accepted Jesus as my Savior. I've, I, I've maybe gone through the motions, maybe even grew up in church all my life, but I've never admitted that I have a sin problem and I need, I need a Savior. I need King Jesus. He's waiting for you to just do that. But for many of you, Maybe you're just going through the motions. You, you know that you've accepted Christ as your Savior. You admit that you need Him. You admit that He rose from the dead on the third day. But many of you are going, maybe going through the motions. Or you've allowed your, your temple, your body, your house to be that things to get in that you know you shouldn't allow. What I do is I write a list of my sins down, things I'm struggling with. And I remember that Jesus came into the temple to cleanse it. And Jesus died to cleanse my sin. And he has. And all I have to do is just give that to him. And so I write that Jesus paid the ultimate price on it. And then I go through each one of those and I pray for strength and ability to be able to deal with those. I'm like, God, give me, give me help with this. Or if it's a lie that the devil is telling me, I'm like, Jesus already paid the price. And then I shred it or burn it. Um, if you're children, do not burn it. Um, but, uh, and I tell myself that, that God cares about the heart. But also this week, look for someone to share this good news with. Because there's many people that are dealing with the same things that you are, that are are struggling right now. And they're looking for a Savior. You can even tell them, you're like, man, I'm not perfect. You know what what I did this week? I had to write things I've been doing with my life that I've allowed sin to creep in my my life, and I've gave it over to the King. I'd love to share that with you. Because He is King. And proclaim the king to others. You know, after I got home from Wendy's, I came into my house and set my bag of Wendy's down on the kitchen table. 
And I sat down. I was like, what is wrong with me? And this inner voice was like, you know what's wrong with you? You got a sin problem right now. I could take care of that for you. I did take care of that for you. You made it more about ritual. God doesn't care about that. God cares about your heart. And so I repented. I had a long talk with God, and I was just like, you know, I'm dealing with pride, I'm dealing with anger. I need to give this to you and allow you to take control and allow you to be king of my life. And I saw an improvement in my attitude. And I definitely saw my improvement in dealing with people that almost run me over in Wendy's. I had to repent. I had to have a, a talk with God. And it wasn't one where I had to pay a price because Jesus paid that price. But I had to admit that it was taking a toll on my life. So I gave that sin over to God. Knowing that Jesus, King Jesus, paid that price on the cross with his death and resurrection. So is Christ your king? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for today. And we, we thank you that Jesus came in on Palm Sunday to proclaim his kingship. His kingship over sin. That he was going to trample sin. He was going to clean the house. We ask that if anyone here is dealing with wrestling with sin at this moment that, that knows you, that they would just give that over to you and say, you know, you paid the cost. You've already paid the price. And, and I just give this over to you. And someone doesn't know you, Father, I pray that they would come to know you during this week. That they would just submit that they need you and allow you to forgive their sins. Because we're all sinful. I pray that this week that we would proclaim the good news that we celebrate on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That we worship a, a king who died for us and rose from the dead and conquered sin. In your son's name, amen.